Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 14, Professor Hubba and the Potato Pie You look worse than me, boy, said Victor from atop a mountain of pillows stacked against the headboard of his bed. A butterfly closure held the edges of a shallow cut over his eyebrow, and an ace bandage circumnavigated his spindly wrist. But he seemed in good spirits, and his color was certainly better than mine. That's not right, Victor, said Helma. You should thank the man for coming instead of antagonizing him. She plunked herself down on a bird's-eye maple rocker at the foot of the bed. I stood frowning beside her. The dresser and the bed were also bird's-eye maple, and together with the braided oval rug and the pair of deco floor lamps that flanked the headboard, the furnishings betrayed the advancing age of their owners. I flashed on the disquieting image of the entire lot on display in an estate sale, and my mood became even darker. What happened? I said sharply. Victor grimaced, misunderstanding the reason for my tone. We don't want to be a bother, August. This seems to be in your line, so we thought you might be able to help. But if you're too busy or don't feel comfortable, just say so. I want to help, Victor. Just tell me what happened. Victor glanced at Helma, seeking support or approval. She waved her hand impatiently. This was yesterday afternoon, he said. Hilma had gone out to do the shopping, so I had the place to myself. I was watching TV in the living room when the doorbell rang. I got up to answer the door, and when I pulled it open, I found... His voice trailed off. Just tell the man, will you? said Hilma. A guy in a ski mask. You didn't look through the peephole to see who was there? I asked. I can't see through that fiddly little hole. Besides, I thought it was her. Left her damn keys behind again. What next? I tried to close the door, but of course he wasn't having any. He shoved it back in my face and knocked me over. Cut my forehead on the latch bolt and sprained my wrist, trying to break my fall. You know what the bastard did then? What? Trussed me up with duct tape and locked me in the closet. Pulled my leg off for good measure and taped it onto the good one. Said it wouldn't be so easy to lose that way. Did you recognize his voice or anything else? Victor glanced at Hilma again. That's going to take some explaining. All right, we'll get to that later. What did he take? Up until this point, Victor had told the story in a breezy, unaffected manner. But now his voice became thick with emotion. Took my instruments, baby and the other. Took most of my autograph pictures. Took my French medal and the one you brought from SF State. Hilma eased herself out of the rocker and went over to sit on the edge of the bed. I could see that it wasn't a comfortable perch for her arthritic joints, but she made no complaint. She just took hold of Victor's hand and clasped it tight to her breast. 
Victor's lower lip began to tremble. He stared down at the bed quilt as he fought to control it. Theft of the instruments, particularly the Bagliomini bass, I could understand. Theft of the photographs and medals, I could not. They would not fence well because of their tie to Victor and their low intrinsic value. Either the thief was very cruel or very stupid, given the way the thing was handled. I was inclined to believe he was a lot of both. I shifted my weight, making my old wingtips squeak. I know how much those things mean to you, Victor, and I want to help you any way I can. But we're much better off going to the police with this. They have a whole system for recovering stolen goods, and they may know of other robberies in the area that are tied to this one. We can't go to the police, said Hilma. Why not? Victor kept his gaze locked on the snowflake pattern of the quilt, but Hilma looked me square in the eye. Because our grandson did this, August, she said grimly. Our grandson. He was the one in the ski mask? Victor swallowed hard, his Adam's apple rising and falling like a creaky freight elevator. No, but I'm certain it was his friend Jason. I recognize his voice and his build. And I'm just as certain I heard him talking to my grandson after he locked me in the closet. Have you confronted him about it? He's not exactly what you call accessible. He doesn't have a phone, and the last address Martha, that's his mother, has for him is one of them residential hotels in the Tenderloin. I took hold of the back of the rocker to steady myself. The cheap bourbon was still working its magic on my inner ear. Martha's your daughter? That's right, said Hilma. What does she say about it? Hilma placed Victor's hand in her lap and stroked the back of it. Sorry is what she says, and not much else. She hasn't had control of that boy for years. Not since he joined the gang and got into drugs. You think he took the stuff to get money for drugs? Of course. And you'd like me to find him and get everything back, without involving the police. Victor nodded. That's about the size of it. I know it's hard to believe, August, but he's fundamentally a good boy. I don't want him getting into any more trouble. I think if you knew him, you'd feel the same way. He's one of us. One of us? There was no hiding the puzzlement in my voice. Victor laughed. A jazz musician. One of the best young horn players I ever heard. He gave me a sly smile. Now just exactly what did you think I meant? It hurt my head to grin, but I did it anyway. Stamp collector, I said. I thought you meant he was a stamp collector. What's his name? Reggie Lane. His father never married Martha, so... I understand. Do you have a picture I can borrow? Hilma pointed to the high boy dresser. I'm in the gold frame there. You take that. I took the picture down from the dresser and examined it. It wasn't the best shot in the world for my purposes. In the first place, it had been taken from the side, and in the second, part of Reggie's face was covered by the hooded sweatshirt he wore. In spite of all that, he looked to be a handsome devil. Chestnut brown eyes with long lashes, brilliant white teeth between a trumpeter's soulful lips, and Victor's high cheekbones added up to the sort of face that would launch a thousand schoolgirl fantasies. I dropped the photo into my jacket pocket. How about the name of the hotel? Do you know that? It's the Galt, said Victor, and there was something funny in his voice as he said it. Not the one... Yes, said Hilma, that one. Swell.
Hilma offered to pay me then, but I told them that I had just been gifted $2,000 for two days' work, and besides, their money was no good with me. I left after assuring them I would do the best I could, and Victor, at least, seemed comforted by that. I think Hilma shared my unspoken concern that the money from the basis had already gone up Reggie's crack pipe. When the restored version of Vertigo premiered in San Francisco several years back, the audience laughed when Jimmy Stewart's character referred to the Mission District as Skid Row. There are certainly some unsavory places in the Mission, such as the apartment building Monica Mappa lived in. But for good or ill, the dot-com boom had brought gentrification to the area, and there were many more clubs, swank eateries, software factories, and restored Victorians owned by yuppies with BMWs. No, when your modern-day San Franciscan refers to Skid Row, he is almost always talking about the Tenderloin. And when he talks about residential hotels in the Tenderloin, particularly notorious residential hotels, he is almost always talking about the Galt. The Galt was a scene of a multiple murder-suicide when a longtime resident went postal after being jostled in the hallway. He gunned down the jostler and three other tenants who had the misfortune to be handy. He finished the business by going into his room and turning the gun on himself. The hotel had been under renovation for years. The awning over the entrance had been stripped down to rusty metal I-beams that stuck out from the building like the skeleton of a hand. Plywood sheeting boxed off the front doors, and someone had used orange spray paint to paint a long, wavering arrow that pointed to a ragged gap in the sheeting that looked like a human-sized mouse hole. Enter was sprayed next to that. I ducked into the gap and followed a series of switchbacks in a plywood tunnel until I was deposited into the space they used for a lobby. The carpet had been ripped up, exposing a bare concrete floor pockmarked with six-inch craters. The only furniture was a pair of sawhorses with two-by-fours lying across it, the only lighting fixture a low-watt bulb hanging from the ceiling by a frayed wire. The pine saw and mildew smell in the air was as stifling as dust beat from a rug. I went up to the reception desk and nodded to a fat guy in an Hawaiian shirt who sat behind a reinforced plexiglass window. Can you tell me what room Reggie Lane is in? I asked. He put down the tattered Matt Helm paperback he was reading and pushed up the brim of his pork pie hat with a plump forefinger. If I could, he said into the speaker hole, it wouldn't be a room in this hotel. How long ago did he check out? He made a wheezy-sounding chuckle. The only thing he checked out was the sidewalk. We evicted his ass last week. You got a forwarding address? He reached below the counter for one of those Airzatz apple pies from McDonald's, shook it partway out of its cardboard sleeve, and took a bite. He munched thoughtfully while he looked me over. Who wants to know exactly? A friend. The only friends Reggie has are drug dealers and gangbangers. You don't exactly fit the profile. Okay, then I'm a private investigator hired by his family. And you're just trying to find him to let him know about his big inheritance. I grinned. I read somewhere those McDonald's pies are actually filled with potatoes. Fine by me. Think I'd eat these things if I actually liked apples? But that's kind of beside the point, isn't it? You were going to tell me what your interest in Reggie is. I took a $20 bill from my wallet and slipped it partway into the metal tray beneath the plexiglass. How about I just make a contribution to the apple pie fund? Assuming, that is, that you have something helpful to tell me about his whereabouts.
He glanced at the money and then inhaled another third of the pie. You're not going to do anything serious, are you? He said with his mouth full. I wasn't kidding about the family. He stole some valuable stuff from his grandfather. All I want to do is get it back. Okay. I don't have an address for him. Mail forwarding is not one of the many services we offer here at the Galt, but I can tell you the most likely place to find him. Where? Sooner or later, you'll find him with his dealer, dude by the name of Professor Hubba. He lives in the projects on the point. Hunter's Point? That's right. He's in one of the units on the hill behind the PG&E plant, somewhere along Middle Point Road. I pulled the 20 back. That's not very useful. There's at least a dozen complexes out there. I'm not going to get very far knocking on doors asking for Professor Hubba. He snorted. Drop the professor if that's too formal for you. Just say you're looking for Hubba. Hubba was a slang term for crack cocaine, and I was quite sure the predominantly African-American residents of the point would not take kindly to a pasty-faced Irish detective going door-to-door asking for crack. I got my wallet out and went through the motions of putting the 20 back. Guess you'd rather make jokes than money. Hold on. I can give you more than that. What? I can describe him for you. He's a tall, well-built guy with a goatee. He usually wears a gold chain with gold dog tags and a red floppy hat with a brim folded up. And he's got a glass eye. Better. But what's his real name? Don't know it. I do know his ride, though. Stands out from three blocks away. It's a boss Mustang from 69 or 70. It's in cherry condition and it's painted bright yellow. And get this. He's got a pair of stuffed yellow tigers in the rear window of the car. You can't miss it. I took the 20 out of my wallet again and flipped it through the slot. He palmed it immediately and it disappeared into the breast pocket of his Hawaiian shirt. You got anything else on him? I asked. He smiled and dispatched the final segment of the pie. The red cardboard sleeve went into a trash can behind him that was already overflowing with red cardboard sleeves. Nope. It pumped me dry. I stared at him for a moment, trying to decide if I'd just thrown my money away the way he'd thrown away the sleeve. All right, I said. Say hello to Matt for me. He nodded and picked up the Matt Helm novel. Watch your back now. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book mystery scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.